The talk tonight is um, mostly about the phrase, uh, may I or you or we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. And uh, mostly tonight it will be about inner harm. So I'd like to start with a part of a song from As You Like It by William Shakespeare. Blow, blow, thou winter wind, thou art not so unkind as man's ingratitude. Thy tooth is not so keen because thou art not seen, although thy breath be rude. Hey-ho, sing hey-ho unto the green holly. Most friendship is feigning, most loving mere folly. Then hey-ho, the holly, this life is most jolly. Freeze, freeze, thou bitter sky, that dost not bite so nigh as benefits forgot. Though thou the waters warp, thy sting is not so sharp as friend remembered not. Hey-ho, sing hey-ho unto the green holly, most friendship is feigning most loving, mere folly. Then hey-ho the holly, this life is most jolly. Pretty intense, huh? Most friendship is feigning. Uh, And when you think about how much we're pretending, you know, how much we're disconnecting from how we really are, how things really are, or how others really are, you know, it, it, it's um, such a beautiful description of inner harm. So when we're disconnected from any moment, we're feigning. When we're connected, we're in touch with the truth of how things are. So I'd like to go into a bit um, why that happens for us. Um, When we're born, uh, we all share that we're born into this world of the six sense doors, seeing hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. Uh, And one of the translations for these doors, the eye door, is sensitivity. So the eye, sensitivity, the ear, sensitivity, the tongue, sensitivity, nose, sensitivity, body, sensitivity, mind or heart, sensitivity, the mind door, the heart door. And sometimes I think it's helpful to remember that that when we're attempting to connect the attention with a sound in the present moment, that we're having to synchronize the attention with the speed of sound. And when we're seeing directly, not, you know, when we're receiving, we can receive 
<laughs> the light of the stars. It's not out there. It's like the, the light is touching the sensitivity of the eye, that we can actually see color and light and dark. It's like it's so incredibly sensitive. The ear so incredibly sensitive to perceive the speed of sound. Physical sensations to perceive earth, air, water, fire. It's, it's so fast. It's so, it's so immediate and so fast. And then there's the mind. And so if you just even spend five seconds trying to pay attention to thinking, it's said that it's going far faster than the speed of light, far faster than the speed of sound. And so you get how sensitive the mind must actually be. And then we wonder why it's hard to be here. You know, it's like we want, we really yearn to be here. And we wonder why we disconnect so much, you know, and that's just the beginning. (laughs) That's just starting to dip into, well, what's really happening? And then, second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana. Each moment of consciousness, each moment of hearing consciousness, each moment of smelling, each moment of seeing, etc., thinking, each moment that's changing moment to moment, This is the biggie. There's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling tone, not emotional tone. It's a mental feeling. So with a sound, each moment of a sound, there's an unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral feeling tone arising and passing in one moment. And so if you kind of, again, just kind of grasp how, what 10 seconds is like for us. It's changing that quickly, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And somehow we believe we can control this. That's what's so amazing. We believe we can control it because we don't investigate it. We don't understand. So sometimes the Buddha describes this kind of practice that we're doing, the Ramavihara, the mindfulness, it's like the suffering that ends suffering because we, we start to be able to understand how and why we suffer, how and why we disconnect. There's a great um, song by Bob Dylan where he said, uh, there must be some kind of way out of here, said the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. And the best line, I can't get no relief, right? It's like, it's just, it's so confusing. And we want a way out. And the the Buddha taught that the way out was through, was through, was through, was through, again and again and again, through understanding. Uh, So back to that first classical phrase, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. When you start looking at inner harm or outer, outer harm, a lot of the time it's when someone acts out of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
uh, and, and usually that inner harm is described as when we get caught in one of the hindrances and act unskillfully. So it's, it's like when we're wishing well, um, part of what happens as we do the loving-kindness practice is our understanding of what we're wishing shifts as our wisdom develops, as our understanding develops, what we're wishing for people is usually deeper and deeper understanding, deeper and deeper protection from this inner harm. Because outer harm is usually coming from somebody else's inner harm. (laughs) And it just rolls on. Because rather than learning how to be with this flow of bombardment of a Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and learning how to be with it, there's this reaction to it, a just kind of conditioned, knee-jerk reaction to it, which is what the Buddha called suffering. So when we um, describe the near and far enemies of loving-kindness, the near enemy meaning an experience that seems so much like love, you know, and it will feel like love, but it'll have that sticky quality to it. So it's not unconditioned. Nothing wrong with conditional love. It's just that it has that sticky quality to it. And if you see why it's sticky, we're usually not attached to the unpleasant moments with people. When we're sort of swooning or romantic or, you know, again, the nostalgia, it's often around the pleasant. Uh, And so what we're actually technically caught in is it's (laughs) we've made an object of somebody. It's like we're caught in the object of the pleasantness. So we're projecting the pleasant out there, but actually the pleasant feeling is happening in here. It's not even out there. Just like seeing is happening here, it's not out there. Hearing's happening here. It's like there's no separation. So part of the suffering is that we're being, you know, we're being fooled that this, the whole play of life is happening outside rather than it's actually happening at the sense doors. Uh, so in, in terms of unpleasant, which is the far, the far enemy, is when we feel the most separate and it's so painful. Anger, fear. If you look at why it's so painful, it's because we're the most disconnected. And, it, and why does it happen? Because we can't be with the unpleasant. Why do we get stuck with the pleasant? Because we want more. <laughs> we want it to last, and it, we can't control it. And it's so painful. Because we believe, we, again, to keep coming back to this, we believe we can control it. And if you look at a day of practice, and you look at how we're going up and down, it's usually around that we think that the, what, when it's going well, what we call a good sitting or walking, when it starts to go, it's like we want that good, good stuff back, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's gone. Mm-hmm. 
and we think it's our fault. Somehow we believe it's our fault that it disappeared. It's amazing. So that um, believing we can control is the hidden object again and again. If you look at where, whenever we're suffering, it's usually around this place of feigning. It's the feigning that, it's the pretense, it's, it's the lack of honesty where we actually believe that what's happening isn't happening. It's, 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 it's either hilarious or it's tragic, right? It has that element. <clears throat> I started doing the formal uh, Vipassana meditation in 1975, and I dared to do my first metta retreat in 1991. So that was a long time of, of waiting, feeling like it, I knew it would be hard for me. Um, and the retreat was at a convent in Australia, and I was in a room that um, was above where these nuns and priests lived. Uh, And I sat in my room. And uh, I would say by about the... It was a two-month retreat. About the seventh day, this priest got a new dog, a puppy, named Fritz. And I still, when I hear that name, Fritz, it's like I'm being electrocuted still. (laughs) Fritz. And Fritz was just disobedient to the max, you know, and barked a lot. But it, it, it really wasn't usually the barking that sent me over the edge. It was, Fritz! 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 And I was like, you know, may I be happy, man. I hate Fritz! You know, it was just like, and when I would, it was two months of Fritz. I'm telling you, it was a seriously challenging retreat. Um, and it was one of those duck ones, you know, the little things, you know. Even when I see one now, I'm like, Fritz! And then, you know, it's like, okay, let's see if I can get over that one, you know. It was so intense, um, the, the unpleasantness and the aversion. Uh, and just that, like, trying to hold on to some semblance of concentration. And I'd just be getting to a place of connection and some interest and kind of feeling good. And it would be like, Fritz! You know, and sometimes I'd, it, it would be fine. You know, as the retreat went on, I'd be able to wish Fritz well, the priest well, myself well. I was just re-rolling. And I couldn't make it last. And when I would hit that place of, really, I want to murder Fritz. I knew I had to, you know, go out for a walk and start again. And, you know, i just kind of cool out. And it was such a powerful teaching. Really hard, but really wonderful. Because I knew from my mindfulness practice that it was unpleasant, you know, aversion. But it was just like, I just wanted the metta practice to be going the way I wanted it to go. So when we... I want to just describe... um, Usually the the way this pattern unfolds is that when there's something unpleasant, we don't notice it, then there's usually dislike. If we're not mindful, there'll be dislike. 
And often we're resistant to that place where we shift from kind of rolling along and everything's going fine. And it's like we we don't want to make the dislike the object of the mindfulness. We get caught in the object of the dislike. And this is when we start losing it. We start disconnecting. Uh, And we sometimes it's like when it's a physical pain, we'll you know we'll be trying to go back to maybe the tightness or the burning. Uh, that's happening, and we're missing that the predominant, what's predominant at that point is the mental state of dislike. We're still trying to go back to the physical sensation, but that's not what's happening anymore. That was five seconds ago. And then if we're not aware of that, and we're kind of trying to, we're trying, it's really, it's again not to blame ourselves, we're just not, we don't have the practice of shifting to the mental state of dislike. Um, and then if we're not with that, then it usually will, will go to aversion or fear, which is like it's either we're collapsing away or we're pushing away from. It's only, all we're doing is, go, it's we're missing, if we just said, ouch, ow. <laughs> if we could just say, ouch, it would just cut it. But we, it's so hard for us to do it. We resist that this is building. And then um, if we can't be with that, building aversion <laughs> or fear, it goes to rage or terror. And then if we can't be with that, that's the roots of war. The roots of war are inside of us. And it's part of the suffering that ends suffering is to be able to go through that process and understand that it goes back to that unpleasant feeling tone that we missed. We couldn't, we disconnected. And then with the pleasant, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, it's, it's just as hard for us to be with pleasant and not lose the plot. It's like being able to notice pleasant and then liking. Just watch a hummingbird or, you know, just practice it with something like, um, <clears throat> if you like the chocolate cupcakes or, you know, whatever it is, you start playing with this pleasant is, and then noticing it sh- shifts to the, mental state of liking, enjoyment. Yeah? And are, are we able to be with the enjoyment? And then <laughs> the, um, the desire, the clinging, the craving, addiction. It's, it's, it's like it's in all of us. And then there's the neutral, which is very interesting. Most Mostly, we don't even have a chance this much to be with the neutral. Uh, but there's plenty of neutral. And then there's the boredom and the indifference. You know, that, the not caring. Um, and then the indecisiveness. And then the delusion, the passivity, the denial, and the naivete. Interesting. So in a, in, a, in a Brahma-vihara course, we don't go so into this stuff as we would normally in a, just a pure mindfulness um, course, but it's very important because, again, as you do the Brahma-viharas, you're going to hit the barriers. And it takes wisdom to keep going. You know, you, it takes any time you're not able to keep the metta going or the compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. Um, usually, there's some kind of <laughs> whiff that we've missed the, at least the liking and the disliking. 
and that we've got caught up in the object of the liking. We've gotten caught up in the object of the disliking. Uh, When we um, teach in Burma, we teach at a very old monastery And there's a cook that, um, when we first met him, for me, I think it was 16 years ago or something, he really felt like it was part of his karma this lifetime to take care of Westerners that came to Burma to practice. Um, And we were so, and we continue to be so grateful to him um, that... I often try to remember a gift for him. And this year that this happened, that I'm going to describe, I didn't have time to get him a gift, so I thought it would be fun to look in Rangoon um, for a chef's hat. It was just um, an idea. (laughs) But in Rangoon, especially at that time, you know, looking for a chef's hat in Rangoon was seriously um, probably kind of crazy to look. Um, But there was this Japanese restaurant that we went to and um, we inquired. And, you know, there was a long wait. Um, It it was a very long wait, actually. Uh, And this this Japanese man came out um, with the chef's hat. This was the best part. So he finds it. He's offering it. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for everything every day. (laughs) <laughs> and it's one of my favorite lines you know it's like it's like a preemptive strike right you know you just like every, just like you might as well start the day like that you know <laughs> and, and it can be either like really unhealthy right just like an unhealthy identification that everything's our fault but there's also like a if it's if it's pure and with wisdom in it, it's like a deep acceptance of our humanity, you know, that we all make mistakes. And you might as well, I just love it, I'm sorry for everything every day, we'll just start out like that, you know. And I, it, was, it was so amazing to me that he was apologizing, because it, it took some time. Amazing. And I, you know, it's like he got it, like it was a miracle. Interesting. When we do a retreat, we often have things come up that we're deeply sorry about. You know? And it's such an important process that, you know, that there's, in the mindfulness practice, it's like considered really healthy to be afraid of not being mindful. really healthy because we know we can cause harm when we're caught in the object of aversion when we're caught in the object of desire you know what it's like to be the object of aversion to be an object of lust to be an object of anything it feels horrible and it's like a lot of us you know don't want to face that we do it a lot but we can't get free of it We can't let go of something until you experience it. 
So this is a process of being able, again, to feel, to pull back the projection and actually feel the wanting, and that the wanting is totally okay, and that the aversion is totally okay. It's that finally that, it's like a radical relinquishment of getting caught in the object. And it's such a relief. Sometimes um, I remember this time. It was, I think, my first year in Burma, and some friends of ours were there, uh, coming from Australia, and they were their plane was late. Uh, and it, it can be sometimes a long trip up, you know, from wherever you come, and you get in Rangoon, uh, and they they flew up to Mandalay, and um, it still it just makes me laugh. Their luggage got lost. So you know that awful feeling when you're watching the luggage come out and everybody's gone and you're still kind of staring and it stopped, right? But you're still hoping it's going to come down the chute, you know? And so they're waiting and um, this man came over and uh, it was his job. Sometimes different cultures are interesting. It was his job to establish blame. Again, I love this stuff. It's like, can you imagine having that job? I'd love it. You know, just walking around trying to figure out who to blame. So he blamed them. (laughs) 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 And they were like, they couldn't believe it. They were like, but our luggage is lost, and first he blamed them. And then this friend of ours was there that told me the story, and he was like, then he blamed them. And finally they had to go all the way to where it went. Like, they, you know, in Burma, they didn't send it back to Mandalay. They had to take this god-awful train to this place to get their luggage. It was so great, you know, expectation. And then when we look at when we're caught in aversion, what do we do? We're establishing blame. And it's like we just get writer and writer and writer but we're avoiding feeling the pain of the aversion. And that's where we, you know, like finding right action, like whether we respond to action or not, the idea of being willing to feel, take responsibility for the unpleasantness oneself so you don't dump the unpleasantness on somebody else and then decide, is the action, can the action come out of love? Can it come out of kindness? Can it come out of wisdom? Instead of coming out of anger. This is, this is the great pause. The great pause that this practice gives us. And that usually you'll distinguish when people start kind of transforming from doing these practices, people will notice that you're pausing more. <laughs> that that knee-jerk reaction isn't happening as much. And that, yeah, that's the beginning of this shift from being like um, imprisoned by the pleasure-pain syndrome, being totally imprisoned by it and not knowing it. And, you know, I think that there are times when we think, oh, it's going to take so long. But we'll see times that, you know, first retreat, 
second retreat or we come out of a retreat and we'll see, maybe in the retreat we didn't see so much, but actually we'll notice something that happens and we'll see that we didn't get caught. One of my favorite examples of that is a um, young man at a young adult retreat that happened recent, a couple of years ago now in Hawaii. Uh, and he didn't have such a good tent. And we had an incredible, incredible rainstorm that night. And as I was walking toward the tent that we were sitting under, and um, everyone was walking toward it or sitting already, and he was staring at this p- puddle with all his stuff in the puddle. Um, And he actually didn't want to come to this retreat. His grandmother sent him. He was 13. And he was sent to make sure his older sister didn't run away from the retreat. (laughs) Really, I mean, he he hung in there. I just had, every day I just looked at him, I'm like, this guy is awesome. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't cracked, you know. Uh, So here's all his stuff wet. It's like puddle. Everyone's gone, and I'm walking by, and I said, oh, you know, you got to come to the sitting? <laughs> and, it, and, you know, he didn't give any indication that he was listening to anything we were saying. I mean, you know, he was pretty shut down. He was just sitting there, and he looked at me, and he said, um, I'm a little bit frustrated, but, you know, um, I think I'm being mindful of it, and I'm frustrated, but yeah, I'll come to the sitting. <laughs> it was incredible, really. The odds against that happening, you know, really, if you had seen, like, the odds that that kid, like, was struggling with, and he understood that he didn't have to be caught in it. He, you know, he was struggling with it, but it's so inspiring. You know, that just that, that freedom, this is about freedom. It's about really having choice. And we don't know what we're up against. We don't know we're up against the stream of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral that's moving so fast. So some of the places that I think we um, tend to see quite clearly on retreat is where we genuinely are making effort and we don't see how that effort has shifted to striving. And we, you know, again, these are all, they're like hidden objects. And so this, um, this effort starts to um, be entangled with aversion or attachment. And so this, this belief that we can control our practice, and then when it's not good enough, and we get, we, we don't notice that the moments where we're actually believing that it should be better and that it's our fault. And, and when we go through these patterns, it's, it's like then we start spiraling into the hindrance of doubt. 
and we don't see it. So like we start doubting ourselves and then we go into a self-hatred attack. We get really afraid um, and then we dive into meaningless le- meaninglessness, hopelessness and despair. Uh, and that pattern is, is vicious. Uh, and it starts kind of innocently. Things are usually going pretty well. And then it shifts, and it's not going so well. And we miss that we feel like it should be better. Um, and, and this is a place in practice that we can actually start noticing. What I used to do is I used to start imagining an ambulance coming. Because <laughs> if I didn't see that I was about to just do myself in and whip myself for it not going well and it being my fault, self-hatred, despair. And over time, I used to kind of take refuge in the despair because I knew I couldn't bottom out anymore. You know, I'd watch that cycle and I would knew that eventually <laughs> it would be impermanent. But it took a long time for me to just... These are very actually small moments that aren't that unpleasant, but it's because we ignore them that we, we don't catch it in time. So the reason I told this story about the um, young man that was so disappointed, right, that was so frustrated. It's like when we can actually, maybe, when things start shifting to not being like what we want, that we can actually feel the disappointment and get interested in disappointment or get interested in in patience or get interested in these places in us that actually, it's not like rage, it's not terror, It's, it's actually kind of sometimes quite subtle. When I did my first retreat with Sera Upandita, um, it was a three-month retreat in 1984. And Sera um, really, I don't think had ever, didn't realize, like coming to this retreat center in Massachusetts, kind of how different it was going to be from Burma. So there was some meeting that had to have happened uh, while, I, while we were sitting. And I could tell by the way he came in to give the talk that um, probably the women on the staff had really just like, you know, told him things that probably made his ears burn. I mean, you know, just like, just wasn't used to, it was such a probably huge cultural change for him, you know. And um, So I think one suggestion, you don't tell the Seidels how to give a Dharma talk in Burma, right? You know, it's just not heard of, right? So I think some of the women probably told him that it would be nice if he told a personal story. And it was, uh, it was about three weeks into the retreat, and um, it, I could really feel that 
this it was so sweet. Like he he just like I could tell you doing something different, and then um, so he and the translator you could tell was all nerve. It was different. It was different. Uh, and by the way, he was doing a series on um, doubt, like night after night after night. And he'd come in and he'd say, because the yogis aren't making any progress, Sayadaw still has to talk about doubts. <laughs> you know, and it's a different culture, right? So like, from that culture, that's inspiring. But for most people, we were all like, whoa, you know, <laughs> three weeks, still uh, got to talk to us about doubt, right? So... Um, um, it was so interesting. Uh, so he builds up to this personal story, and you know he was, uh, I think, was it seven years old? I think he was put in the monastery, um, and he was put in a room with a really old monk, and the monk would snore all night, really loud snore, night after night after mm-hmm. night. And so he's telling us the story about being in this room, a seven-year-old with this old man, and he said, and Sayadaw had a moment of doubt. <laughs> you know, and we're just in shock, right? Like, so Sayadaw had one moment of doubt. <laughs> and this is the best part. He said, and then I gave myself a good talking to and I've never had a moment of doubt since. <laughs> and it, like, I just loved it. It was like such a pep talk that, you know, mostly backfired for people. <laughs> um, and the best part of this is that I told this story a couple months ago, and this, um, this yogi that had practiced a long time, you know, a really long time, um, was out doing walking meditation, and he'd been struggling with the thought pattern for years, just this thought pattern that would def- it would feel like it would defeat him and defeat him and defeat him. And he decided to try it. He gave himself a good talking to. I'm not kidding. He came into this interview and it stopped. It's just like, it was such relief. It's like, he was so grateful I told that story. And you know, this is, it's really important to watch this place in us where this is the balance between just like actually being firm and just saying, no, I am not going to get caught in this and just just shift to concentration. You know, be, if you're with one moment of the rising movement of our breath, there is no mental torment possible. If you're with some sound, some sight, there is actually no mental torment possible. It's part of the practice, and it's a huge relief when we get that. But there's, and there's also hidden objects where we have an obsessive thought pattern, and yes, if we're planning 10 million times in a half an hour, yes, there's usually a hidden object. But we're not meant to dig it out, actually. It, that's what makes Vipassana or Metta practice safe, where you just sort of make space and you, you, know, you get to know yourself. For me, a lot of planning usually means fear. And then I make space, I come back to my body, just make space to see, is there any fear? A lot of times I don't notice anything, but I pull back from the planning and start again. 
you know. And this is the kind of art of meditation where sometimes it's good to be firm and say, not now, <laughs> and really have that ability um, to stop it. And other times it's really important to make space for something more hidden to emerge. And it doesn't emerge by us thinking we know what something is. If, so, if planning is going on, I don't second-guess myself and go, oh, it's fear, because sometimes it isn't fear. Sometimes it's boredom. Sometimes it's wanting pleasure. I mean, it's, 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 it can be, it, it's always different. And we want to nail it all down and make it really, you know, secure to the point where there's no aliveness. You know, life is alive. It's unpredictable. The breath moves. If it stopped, you'd be in big trouble. this pace that uh, our practice goes can be very interesting. Um, Sometimes the metaphor of caterpillar, cocoon, butterfly is helpful in terms of um, how things go. And I think that mostly we're humanly very susceptible to the butterfly. You know, it's lightness, it's freedom, you know, it's that, that, the feeling tone of the butterfly. And we don't always remember that they live a very short life. And that there's been so much behind it, you know, sometimes years in a cocoon, or many, 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 many days as a caterpillar. And that just kind of that effort, the caterpillar, you know, like is eating, you know, right, right? It's like... Um, a lot of the practice is that. And then that times when we're in the cocoon and it's just feeling like, may I be happy? May you be happy? Ah! You know, it's just like, it's so tasteless. It's so dry. <clears throat> There's nothing in it that makes, you know, you just can't bear it anymore. It's just like that need to just cool out and wait and wait and wait. And to trust that pace, that there's something happening when nothing's happening. So this is from a um, passage from a book, Things That Are By... They're essays by Amy Leach. And she's talking about um, caterpillars and cocoons and butterflies. In the end... Whether people know how small a portion of time is given to the butterfly, how large a portion to the caterpillar, does not matter. For they can never infect the caterpillar with their anxious urges to become. 
a small apple-green caterpillar who climbs a toad flax plant, who somehow loses a foothold while walking across a stem to get to a leaf, slips and is hanging on by only two crochet hook feet, the wind swinging it back and forth over the creek. It's not thinking, Alack, I shall fall into the icy water. I shall be swallowed by a fish. I will never now wrap myself in silk and wake up with powdery, iridescent blue and green wings, fly away with them to fields of cornflower and mate and feed on the tears of wild buffalo. My life, my eating, my climbing, it's all been meaningless. (laughs) Rather, it thinks, I'm swinging, I'm swinging. I'm swinging. (laughs) And we laugh because we know that place where we just get so afraid nothing's happening, you know, that it's not good enough, that the pace is too slow. Um, And yet, there we are, just totally okay, swinging by a little thread. And that that's an important part of the process. So much of my practice with Upandita, it was so amazing. I'd go in and I'd want something, some something, and he would just say, very neutrally, he'd say, digest this. For a whole month once, it was digest it. I'd, be, I'd walk out going, digest it. <laughs> you know, I wanted so much more. Digest it. And he was so right. Always he was right. Digest it. You can't spend too much time just practicing getting into the feeling essence of a benefactor or yourself. You know, it's like making that connection and then waiting and, and just seeing if there's some connection that rises. Sometimes when I do that style of practice where I call up the loving-kindness, sometimes it doesn't appear till five minutes before the sitting ends. And it's, I've completely forgotten <laughs> that I even made that intention. And then, oh, there it is. And I can trace it back to that intention. And it, it'll come very strongly. But it's like, it didn't come at, at the pace or the time scale that I thought it should. So it can be helpful to really be aware of doubt, you know, because it, it, it and to, if you do get caught in it, to notice it slide into the fear the meaningless, hopeless, you know, despair, that it's like there's a recipe for it. There's a cause and condition for it. Um, And and remember Tomo. Tomo is that just a sense that we can relate to um, joy the same as we can to doubt. We can relate to being with the sound of a bird the same as we can the appearance of dislike. 
It's just all a matter of practice. It's getting where we tend to want to get rid of things or get things rather than to get a relationship of wisdom and loving kindness with so that if something appears like aversion to something unpleasant again, we don't think anything's wrong. It's just, it's just aversion, no problem. We can be mindful of it rather than try to get rid of it. So, so underneath this process, there's that sense that when we look carefully, we see that we're making an interpretation about ourselves in relationship to what's appearing. And, and this is the critical part. So if doubt appears, or if joy appears, it'll be maybe, we think, oh, you know, doubt isn't good, joy is good, and then I am good because I have joy, I am not good because I have doubt, you see? And that's where this whole cycle of samsara keeps going on and on and on and on and on. Um, and and uh, what we are really hoping is that we see that kindness, the appearance of kindness, tends to really affect our interest in how life is. And check it out, don't take my word for it, but it's like, if, you, if kindness appears, you'll usually be interested in aversion. If kindness appears, there's a possibility for interest in doubt. If kindness appears, there might be interest in liking or enjoyment rather than getting caught in it. it. I am enjoying, it is my enjoyment versus it's just a mind state of enjoyment that, that's impermanent. So back to the six sensitivities. Uh, I remember when Steve started teaching the six sense door loving kindness practice, and it it brought me such happiness. Um, uh, and we will, as the pra- as a as the retreat goes on, we will start to have you be aware of the, sen- the physical sensations in the eye as they're happening and then to infuse that area with metta and then to go to the ear and to be aware of hearing and then to infuse that area hearing meaning sound vibration happening moment by moment and then infusing that with metta and that le- like going through all the sense doors the whole body smell um, thoughts infusing the thoughts with metta, infusing the emotions with metta. Uh, and as Steve did today, it's like the, the opening up of that metta field uh, so that there's no part of the universe left out, all based on our six sense doors. And that's the... Um, basis for the liberation of, um, that comes through affectionate awareness. Very, very worthy um, 
of all of us to practice. Because it's such a gift to the world. Let's sit for a minute. This is a poem for the stream that we get to share. This retreat with by Chu'u Chu'ang. There is a brook in the mountains. Nobody I ask knows its name. It shines on the earth like a piece of the sky. It falls away in waterfalls with a sound like rain. It twists between rocks and makes deep pools. It divides into islands. It flows through calm reaches. It goes its way with no one to mind it. The years go by. Its clear depths never change. May we always be in touch with those clear depths inside of us, the timeless. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.